the rest of you to open your Bibles to Psalm 2. We are beginning a, a series this summer, we're just calling it Summer Psalms, and uh, sometimes uh, it's not uncommon for churches to do this, where uh, the, the, you know, the schedules in the summer are kind of revolving and people are doing different things, so they'll just kind of do a random sampling of psalms and call it Summer Psalms. We're trying to be a little more intentional than that, uh, in that the psalms that we're selecting in this series are designed to give you a sampling of the different genres, different types of psalms that are, uh, that, that are in the Psalter, so we're not doing all 150 psalms. Uh, but we are going to just do psalms that speak to uh, the theme this morning, you know, God's royalty, and you'll see in Psalm 2 a, a coronation theme. Uh, there are psalms of joy and praise, and, and those are certainly uh, things that I think we are familiar with when, when we read the psalms. There are some of the psalms that we like to skip over, though, and we shouldn't, uh, because those are the psalms that really uh, validate some of the things that are going on in our hearts that we don't always want to acknowledge, uh, but nor do we know what to do with. Like when you're angry, uh, when you want to hurt somebody, uh, when, when you're depressed, uh, maybe when you want to hurt yourself. And, uh, and instead of just pretending like those emotions don't exist and we shouldn't be thinking those things because we're good Christians, the Psalms validate that that's part of our human constitution and they direct us what to do when I can't make sense of my inner world. And that's why the Psalms are really important. They're going to lead us in, in worship uh, this summer. Uh, let's start with Psalm 2. I think this is a great place to start. It starts with God as king. We're part of his kingdom. And, uh, and I'm going I'm to ask for your help in, in reading this. I would love for you all as a congregation to read verse 3. Let's stand in honor of God's word. And when we get to verse 3, I want you to, you know, uh, use your angry eyes or your angry voice and, uh, and, and uh, say verse 3. Um, sort of like we do around Easter time, you know. Uh, but this is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, we, we want blessing. Um, we want you to bless us. We want the blessings of your kingdom, that it would come and, and that it would put to right the things that are wrong and um, that are in our world and even the things that are wrong in us. 
And so we pray you would send your spirit. Um, have your way. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. We're going to just look at a, a few uh, things here. We want to talk about the good news of God's king, that it's really good news that God has uh, established his throne on Zion, um, and that yet, despite God establishing his throne and, and placing Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords, uh, there is still nonetheless opposition uh, to Jesus as king, when there should be devotion uh, to him. And so, Let's talk about the good news of the king and opposition to the king and devotion to the king. Uh, the first is just to recognize that this is really good news that there is a, a God-blessed um, king on high because we crave a king. Uh, and, and we see this in a lot of different ways. Uh, politically, we'll talk about in a second, but just even culturally, look at the ways that we aspire to, to see and have over us heroes, conquerors, champions. Uh, and so if you have noticed, uh, as, as maybe you have uh, in the box office, uh, every summer uh, and every fall and every winter, it's like over and over and over again, there's a new superhero movie. And they're making millions and millions of dollars because our culture craves these heroes who can represent us and who can deliver us. ABC News said that superheroes are the Greek gods of secular modern life, otherworldly figures able to tackle the problems of this human world. And that's what we want. I, I want somebody to, to tackle the problems that I can't seem to manage. And I want somebody to put to right the things that are broken. Um, so maybe it's our movie-going uh, you know, genre that, uh, that describes this, or even just in the sporting world, uh, we call our different athlete, uh, athletes, these, uh, these superheroes, uh, King James, right? LeBron James. He's the king, and he's the king that Cleveland wanted uh, to take them to the championship for the second year in a row, which would be absolutely unprecedented for any team from Cleveland, please. Uh, but King James couldn't deliver. But all their hopes, you know, were, were riding on the king. But then you get to politics and where it really starts to, to kind of take shape, moving out of just culture to our, the, the very uh, heartbeat of civilization. How do we view our politicians? And what do we invest in their success? And how do, what do we invest in order to uh, avoid their failure? So we just had the sixth congressional district race in Georgia last week. And it was the most expensive um, congressional race, uh, I think, ever. They spent $50 million on this race, uh, this runoff uh, election, where a total of 259,000 votes came in. Do the math. $50 million spent on 259,000 votes. That's almost $300 a vote per vote. Would you rather have $300 cash from the government or would you rather get to go push, pull the lever? I mean, you know, when does it become just obscene? Um, just to, to, in, in perspective, the 2016 presidential election cost about $50 per vote. So this, this little congressional district where all the hopes of, of the Democratic Party are riding on, you know, we got to do the upset. And the Republicans are looking, you know, for validation too. And, and, you know, they're pouring gobs and gobs of money into it because we're looking for saviors. 
We're looking for heroes. We're looking for champions who will you know, right our societal, political, international wrongs. Uh, Richard Lovelace, uh, an author I, I really like a lot, you know, he says that one of the ruling passions of humanity is the search for a righteous government. In the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler would only come along, the world would be healed of all of its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. And Richard Lovelace is just basically affirming what the Bible teaches us. So a little Old Testament lesson, uh, if you're new to the Bible or new to the church or whatever, there was a time uh, before uh, Israel had its monarchy, and, uh, and, and the people were asking for a king. They wanted somebody to rule over them, and the prophet Samuel said, no, don't do this. You have God as your king. And the people said, no, 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 we want a human king. Uh, and in, second, in 1 Samuel 8, uh, the people say, there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And that's, that's a great way to describe what we want out of our kings, what we want out of our rulers. We want somebody who's going to go before us, who's going to fight our battles for us, who's going to right what's wrong, who's going to you know, remedy all the perceived ills. The problem with Israel, the problem with us, is that we're looking for that kind of remedy in, the, in a human being. God says, you're going to find it in me. You can't get it through anybody like you, a sinner, somebody who's fallible, et cetera. We'll talk about that in a second. But, so let's go back to Psalm 2. Why is it good news that God says, I've installed my king on Zion? I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You'll have worldwide dominance, right? I mean, that's what it sounds like. When you read Psalm 2, is that, does that sound like Israel to you? Does that sound like what God did through Israel? Listen to a Jewish commentator. This is not a Christian commentator. This is a Jewish commentator named Robert Alter, and he says that the geotheological paradox of these words runs through many of the Psalms. Zion is a modest mountain on the crest of which sits a modest fortified town, the capital of a rather small kingdom surrounded by vast empires. That the poet boldly imagines it as God's chosen city divinely endorsed to be the queen of nations in the splendor of humankind. It doesn't sound like Old Testament Israel. It almost sort of sounds like wishful thinking. It almost sort of sounds like the kind of, of, of you know, uh, musings that somebody who knows that they are weak is, is, is dreaming, daydreaming about the day of vindication, daydreaming about the time when they're going to get uh, one up on the one who's bullying them. Um, were you ever bullied in school when you were little? Or maybe you're growing up and you're, st you're still feeling bullied at work. You know, your boss or whoever, just, they're, they're just not kind. And they take you for granted and you really feel powerless to do anything about the situation and you're just, it feels dehumanizing because you feel like you can't do anything. And you need a champion. You want somebody to go to bat for you. If, any, if somebody would just make this situation better, 
that would be better. That's how it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so you wonder, is that what Israel is thinking in Psalm 2? Well, when Robert Alter talks about this modest king in a modest kingdom, there's something very true about that when you look at Psalm 2 through the lens of the gospel. If you're just looking at it through the lens of politics and international relations, it, it, it looks ridiculous, actually. But when you look at it through the lens of the gospel and when you see the fulfillment of this king, when you see Jesus, you actually do see a rather modest king, right? Jesus was pretty modest. There wasn't, there was, he wasn't showboating. He wasn't lording it over anybody. In fact, his kingdom was sort of this strange, small version of what the world was expecting, where he gathers a, a very small band of brothers around him, uh, and they do things that the world's not expecting, but they don't understand, and so it seems to be this underground movement. It's nothing that's really in your face. It's very uh, subversive. Uh, and Jesus, through healing and through sacrificing and through serving, is, is, is establishing his kingdom. And it's something unlike anything the world's ever seen. In fact, instead of wearing a crown of gold, he ends up wearing a crown of thorns. And the world doesn't have a category for this modest king and his seemingly modest kingdom. It almost looks like Jesus himself is being bullied, right? It almost looks like he himself is the victim unless you understand the purposes behind his cross, unless you understand the true nature of his kingdom. Um, it is good news that this king has been established. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, um, I'm going to show you a, a couple of places in the New Testament where Psalm 2 shows up again. Psalm 2 is a really important psalm. Uh, and in the New Testament, it's repeated over and over and over again. Uh, a couple of times in Acts, even, chapter 13, uh, the... Uh, the, the uh, disciples are saying, we bring you good news, right? There's the word gospel. We bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is Jesus' coronation psalm. It's the coronation of, the, of, of God's son, his eternal son, um, who is declared with power to be the one who is going to reign over all things. This is a, a, not just a royal psalm, it's a coronation psalm, and it's good news that God raised him from the dead to be king of kings and lord of lords. In Revelation, that theme is, uh, is consistent, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There really is a king right now who reigns over all things. We may not see all of the the precise outworkings, it may not all make sense to us, but he is reigning, and that is good news for us. This king, uh, despite the good news of, of, a, of a king that is blessed by God, not a king of our own making, this king nonetheless is, is, is opposed. There's opposition uh, to God's king. Uh, in the psalm, the first stanza, um, I should have pointed this out earlier, in the, in the second psalm, the first Three verses are the nations speaking, and then the next stanza is God speaking, and then the third stanza is the Son, the, the King Jesus uh, speaking, and then the fourth is sort of this, okay, now what? You know, what's your response? But in that first stanza, you hear the nations raging and the peoples plotting in vain, right? The kings of the earth 
are setting themselves up and opposing the king from heaven. The rulers are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So basically what the Bible is depicting from you know, Genesis 3, where we start acting in rebellion against our king, all the way to the end of the Bible is this picture of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, the kingdoms of this world. Uh, in Revelation, it's depicted as a, um, as a, as a red dragon um, with this enormous tail sweeping the stars from the sky. And this dragon is waiting, crouching at the, uh, just below the feet of this woman who's about to give birth, about to give birth to God's son. And the dragon is waiting to devour it. And she gave birth to a male child in Revelation 12. And the, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 echoed in Revelation in this picture of God's kingdom versus the kingdoms of this world. And this was, you know, we, we were thinking about this and memorizing this in John 15, right? Jesus says, hey, look, don't be surprised. The world's going to hate you. It hated me first. And this is to fulfill what was, the, you know, the prophets, that uh, they hated me without reason. So Jesus said, they're going to hate me, they're going to hate you also. That there really is opposition uh, to the king and, and who he is. Um, Psalm 2 shows up again. Uh, this time, the apostle Peter is quoting Psalm 2 in the book of Acts. And, and this is great because instead of, you know, me standing up here and saying, hey, everybody, uh, turn to Psalm 2 and, and let's, let's pick this apart and let's try to, you know, exegete Psalm 2, you actually get Peter doing his own commentary on Psalm 2. He quotes, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then listen to Peter continue in Acts 4. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. King Herod, kings and rulers are, are setting themselves up. King Herod and Pontius Pilate, who is a puppet ruler over Jerusalem. Along with the Gentiles, the peoples who are raging, and the, uh, the nations who are raging, and the peoples of Israel. So in one swoop, you know, Peter says, this is everybody uh, who is in opposition to the one that God has set on his throne. Uh, and that these people are doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, all right, great. On the one hand, we can all look out of, uh, in our, into our world, and we can watch the nightly news, and we can see nations raging. And they're not only raging against each other, but they're raging ultimately against God because God's saying, hey, we're supposed to love each other and serve each other instead of kill each other and, and so on. You see that, right? But in order for Psalm 2 to make any sense to us, for us to leave here with any, any kind of transformation, any change in our own hearts, you and I have got to be able to identify with these nations and the peoples that are raging. Why do the nations rage? Well, a better question to ask, a more personal question to ask is, why do I rage? Why do I shake my fist at God? And I mean, you go, oh, I don't do that. I'm a Christian. I don't shake my fist at God. I don't rage at God. Well, maybe let's, let's rephrase the question then. Why do I lie? 
Why, why do I rebel against the guy who is truth, who tells me to tell the truth? Why do I try to manipulate the circumstances by lying so that I can get what I want? Why do, why do I rage? Why do I lose my temper? Why do I fly off the handle? Why am I so you know, short with people? Uh, why do I manipulate people? Why, uh, why do I blow through people like they're obstacles? Or why do I use them or abuse them in order to get what I want? You do that, I do that, we all do it. We can be honest about what's going on in the dark places in our hearts because we're in church. This is where we're supposed to be honest. You know, another way to put this is why do we punish instead of forgive? Why do we curse when we're supposed to bless? Why do we judge instead of giving grace? Why do we rage? Tim Keller puts it this way, man is traumatized by and is hostile to the holy presence of God. Yet we were built for fellowship with God. On the one hand, we cannot live with God and we cannot live without God. And this is the essence of man's condition. All of our problems flow from it and none can be understood apart from it. Then until you recognize, you know what, it's not just the kings of the earth that are shaking their fists at God. I am, I have my own little kingdom. And any time I try to assert my will be done in, uh, you know, in my kingdom, uh, I'm shaking my fist at God. Because that's the point at which I'm not letting people see the true king in my life. I'm, I'm eclipsing, I'm trying to eclipse him because I want my kingdom to come and I want my will to be done. And God help the person who gets in my way. So on the one hand, there's all this opposition going on out there and in here. When there should be devotion to this king, starting in verse 4 all the way really to the end, you get all of these warnings and cautions about not worshiping the true king. Um, that therefore, in verse 10, be wise, O kings, you know, speaking back to those who were you know, raging. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Uh, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a warning and a promise. It's a warning against putting our faith, putting our trust in anyone besides Jesus for our ultimate good, for our ultimate blessing. Human kings, human queens can't do that. That's, uh, that's kind of the point behind uh, that Netflix series, The Crown. If, you've, if you saw season one, looking forward to season two. It's really well done. And, um, you know, I'm not a, a movie or television critic, but I look at that and I, I hear Shakespeare, you know, that heavy is the head that wears the crown. Uh, and in season one, episode two, the second episode, uh, you get Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, and uh, they're doing this, this goodwill tour, and they're in Africa, in Malawi, and they're with the Maasai tribe. Uh, and it's a goodwill visit, you know, and uh, they're a colony of England and the empire. And Elizabeth and Philip are, are walking along this sort of parade where the Maasai tribe are standing at attention, the warriors are there, uh, and they pass this one uh, older, you know, very dignified uh, Maasai man, and he has uh, an enormous headdress. Think of like an Indian, American Indian headdress, but instead of feathers, it's fur. And it just, it circles his, his entire head. Um, and in this really, I think it was a great um, moment of, of uh, screenwriting, uh, 
Prince Philip says something to the effect of, you know, get a load of that, you know, crazy hat or, or something like that. He doesn't understand. And then Elizabeth sets him straight. Philip, that's not a hat. That's a crown. That's the crown. He's the king of the Messiah tribe. And, and Elizabeth and that Messiah king, they share a glance. A glance of understanding, a glance of knowing, a glance of, I get it. I know, I know how heavy that crown is. And, you know, this series just depicts how tricky it is for a young woman whose you know, father's died and she's now the queen of the British Empire. How do you deal with that? What human being has the capacity and the wisdom and the righteousness and the virtue to run an empire the size you know, that the British Empire was then? What human being has enough wisdom and dignity and you know, compassion to run the city of Waynesboro? What human being has enough dignity and compassion and power and virtue to just run your own household without failing, without tripping? You see that absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, just a little bit of power is going to corrupt just a little bit. And that's what happens to us because of our sin nature. And so we cannot rely on human beings to be our kings or our queens or our rulers. We can't put our ultimate trust in them. Be warned. Don't do that. Don't reject the one who actually does have that capacity. The one who actually does have that virtue and that wisdom. So be warned. Instead, be blessed. Don't put your trust in anything other than Jesus, not only for your eternal salvation, but also for your day-to-day blessing. That blessing is found in the one who was willing to wear a crown of thorns. That blessing is found in the one who went to a cross to take our sin away, who was willing to pardon our rebellion. I mean, isn't that a better way to describe sin sometimes? Sin sounds really churchy. Sin sounds really quaint and sort of old-fashioned, but rebellion is really what sin is, and it's rebelling against the true king who God has established on his throne, and anytime you and I call our own shots, we're saying, no, thank you very much, Jesus. I'm going to do it my way. And this same Jesus, instead of just blasting us, he blesses us. And he went to a cross in our place, and he took our sin and our rebellion on himself, died, was buried in a grave. Three days later, he rose victoriously from that grave, demonstrating he really is the king defeating all his enemies, even the ultimate enemy, death. Isn't that the king that we want? Isn't that the king we, we, we crave? Isn't that the one that you want? The one who looked like he was bullied, but instead he was being vindicated. And instead of you know, squashing you know, his bullies, he would bless those who repent and come back to him. But those who remain hard, he does have a rod of iron. We do need to be warned. We can't go our own way. Instead, we need a king. We need blessing. We need a king who will not be corrupted by his absolute power. 
We need a king who is strong enough to defeat death, even our our greatest enemy. We need a king who will uphold justice and defend the weak and punish the wrong. And we need a king who is gracious and good-willed, who will pardon the repentant. We need a king who will promote mercy and provide provide for the powerless. We need a king who will love his people instead of take advantage of them. We need a king who will love his people even to lay down his life for his people. We need a king who will make lasting peace on earth, who will bring nations uh, together, who will bring neighbors together, who will not just bring you know, neighbors and, and uh, the, the people of earth together and reconcile them through his peace, but to bring even heaven and earth together and reconcile them through his peace. We need a king whose kingdom will never end because he reigns through the power of an indestructible life. We need a king who has built us, who made us for a purpose, as we were talking about here at VBS, and who has called us to honor him, to show the world the glory of King Jesus. And when we are living consistent lives with his kingdom, yes, we point people to him. We are his image bearers. We are models of who he is. And the beautiful thing about his kingdom is that even when Our lives are inconsistent with his kingdom. We can still point to the glory of King Jesus. As we repent, as we turn, as we point to the one who will forgive our sins, it continue to transform us so that we can be more like our king. Uh, Let's pray as we close. Jesus, thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for inviting us and making us a part of your kingdom, for forgiving our sins and providing a passageway and uh, providing amnesty, providing us who were rebels, uh, providing us citizenship. Lord, we thank you for your gifts, and we pray that you would forgive us for our assumptions or for taking uh, these things for granted. And instead, we pray that you would help our lives more and more be an echo of Psalm 2, uh, where we kiss you and we pay homage to you and we exalt you who is on the throne. And then we take our shelter in you. We find refuge in you. Lord, for any here who have not yet bowed their knee to you and confessed with their lips that you are Lord, I pray that you would give them faith and repentance this morning. I pray that they would begin and turn and follow you. And I pray for all of us that, that we would continue to follow you, that you would get more and more glory as our lives conform more and more uh, to your kingdom and as we continue to exalt the one who is on the throne. In his name we pray, amen.